I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. Welcome to School of Everything Else. Obi-Wan Kenobi. Leave us alone. When the time comes, he must be trained. Like you trained his father. You still want Kenobi. He's gone. Maybe you've been looking in the wrong places. I want every lowlife and bounty hunter to squeeze him. With us this time around are friends of the show and vocal Discord members, Chris Finnick. Hello there. <laughs> it was inevitable. And Austin Wilden of Wits Writing. Hey, and Chris, like, I was thinking, like, right before this podcast, like, whoever got introduced first was going to be the one to get this. Uh-huh. I, I, I had a backup quote in case you got introduced. Chris. Well, tell you what, Austin, you can also say, hello there. Hello there. Hello there. <laughs> or you could go with, I'm going to need a ladder. When I first saw the Star Wars trilogy in the early 80s screened at Christmas on British ITV, and I began to think about what happened before, during what would end up being the prequel era, I thought a lot about Vader as a predatory stalking force hunting down the remaining Jedi from the scraps of information I could piece together, and Obi-Wan trying to get Luke and Leia's mother to safety with the children. One assumed they had a mother, and as Leia said, kind but sad. Many years later, after The Phantom Menace in 1999, but before Attack of the Clones in 2002, I had faces and names, a more tangible world to set this up in my head, and a boy who would grow into a frightening machine man. And I remember, this is absolutely true, very vividly, dreaming of Obi-Wan Kenobi trying to get a pregnant Padme Amidala through a crowded spaceport, while a partially suited Vader, like he, in my head it was going to be in stages, so rather than just boom and he's Vader, it was going to be his leg gets cut off so he gets a, a cyborg leg, his arm gets cut off he gets a cyborg arm, his lung gets stabbed so he has difficulty breathing, so like it would slowly build the suit around him, instead it was like and now he's Vader um, but I dreamed of like a partially suited Vader pursuing them with a horrifying shadowy tenacity that I had seen in Darth Maul and so had young Anakin and then films two and three came out, and I realized that what I was imagining was never going to come to pass. George, bless his little cotton socks, spent three films and six and a half hours getting us to a Darth Vader who seemed to go from angry young man to the exact version of him that we see in Return of the Jedi in an afternoon, with all the pieces set in place for A New Hope. This meant, apparently, nothing dramatic happened for 19 years while the kids grew up. And the, if you remember, George was like, that's it, that's the last, last Star Wars. There's going to be no more, ever, ever. And I was like, really? <laughs> Padme 
conveniently died of heartbreak, taking her off the list of people with any kind of agency. Obi-Wan and Yoda hid for 19 straight years, and Vader did his thing very much off camera. In subsequent years, we've had glimpses and flashes of the state of play during those 19 years. The 2008 video game, The Force Unleashed, delivered Galen Marek as Starkiller, Vader's apprentice, snatched as a boy from the Jedi father he lost when the Dark Lord was hunting him down on Kashyyyk, raised as Vader's apprentice. And while this game is now rendered pre-Disney Legends non-canon, it has delivered a surprising amount of influence upon what would replace it. Galen Marek is, well, for a start, like Galen Erso was, was, was Jin Erso's father in Rogue One. I hadn't even uh, haven't thought of that since I last saw Rogue One, but yeah. Ga even just the name ca carried on from there. But uh, Galen is instrumental to aiding the fledgling rebellion run by Mon Mothma and Jimmy Smith's Bail Organa of Alderaan and his adopted daughter Leia, who also shows up in that game, younger than she is in Star Wars. The martyred Galen's family crest even became the rallying symbol on the rebels' helmets, that red phoenix that's on Luke's helmet um, on either side. Then Dave Filoni's Rebels in 2014, six years later, gave us a Ralph McQuarrie-inspired pre-original trilogy version of The Empire, which, to begin with, was very engaging, reaching heights of drama in Season 2 when Ahsoka Tano, returning after exile from the Jedi Order at the end of Clone Wars, faced down Anakin and cut part of his helmet open, kind of like he gets his helmet cut almost entirely off at the end of The Force Unleashed. The Mandalorian girl Sabine Wren lent her phoenix-like graffiti tag to the Rebellion as a sign of hope, and I fully expect her to turn up in some live-action show soon. In fact, I think it's actually been confirmed she'll be in Ahsoka. Uh, not least because she has a complicated history with the Darksaber. This show also introduced The Inquisitors, the new Disney rethink of the Force Unleashed and Vader's apprentice. These sad, scary individuals invariably seem to be lightsaber-wielding Force users, denied the ability to train as either Jedi or Sith, and keep it a, kept at a certain level to make them useful. Some of them have no Force powers at all, and they use the spinny lightsaber mechanic to kind of give them a bit of an edge against Jedi but they're tools for rooting out the remnants, Gestapo-style, and this is very much in keeping with the original design ethic of Darth Vader in the 1970s. Then Rogue One in 2016 showed us a galaxy under the crushing boot heel of a fascist empire, resorting to a full-on Death Star as a means of keeping everyone in control through terror of annihilation. And that was set mere days before the 77 Star Wars, and again, reconfirmed Bail Organa, Mon Mothma, and Princess Leia of Alderaan as major players. Solo ventured back to a, apparently exactly the same time period as the Kenobi miniseries, about ten, nine, nine years before A New Hope, steering clear of force-related business and sticking to crime gangs, and again, a fledgling rebellion led by the same actress who played Carly in Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Erin Kellyman, whom I hope will be back in Star Wars because Marvel seemingly threw her down the garbage chute. 
2019's Jedi Fallen Order video game, set five years after Revenge of the Sith and five before Obi-Wan, deals with a fleeing former Jedi being hunted throughout the galaxy by the Inquisitors, trying to find the planet that everyone escaped to, a planet full of now much older Force users in the Rey timeline who are in hiding and I, I hoped would be at least alluded to in that year's Rise of Skywalker. It wasn't. Uh, when I first heard about this show, Obi-Wan, I worried that it would be largely set on Tatooine like so much Star Wars TV. There's got to be more in the galaxy than that dirt ball. And I thought it would mostly involve Kenobi peeping on a young Moppet Luke Skywalker. And I don't know why my mind didn't leap to Leia, certainly not to the extent that she is in this. It's the switcher of the century and I was delighted by it. Perhaps I didn't want to hope after being disappointed so frequently recently. I was also worried that the perverse hero worship of Darth Vader, exemplified by the guy sat beside me in 2016 at the midnight first screening of Rogue One, ecstatically ejaculating into his drawers at the thrilling moment when Vader murdered seven rebel troopers in a darkened corridor using his amazing sword and hyper-aggressive force powers, you know that movie Glory where everybody died to support a larger cause? So what if in Glory, after everybody dies, they have an extended sequence where a super buff confederate soldier walks out and it plays cool music and the confederate soldier just starts slicing everybody up with his bayonet and the audience is like, yeah, confederate soldier, he's so awesome. Would you feel weird about that? I would find that strange. And then after the Confederate soldier sequence, Abraham Lincoln himself walks out, but he's like CGI. And he's like, I think we're gonna win this thing. And then it goes to credits. I suspected that Vader in a show would re-deliver this experience, similar to how digital gonk Luke Skywalker turned up at the end of Mandalorian season two to save the day with his legendarily remarkable saber skills, racking up a robot kill streak that any Battlefront player could be proud of. Virtually indistinguishable from each other, just with different factions, they are slaughtering with their astonishingly violent talents. I, I was disturbed that that was what they thought we all wanted. And that's not what happened here. If anything, philosophically, this miniseries is mostly in line with The Last Jedi, delivering a hermit who is tired and old and not a little embittered, but most of all isolated and almost entirely defeated by personal failure. But having that depression eased by a young woman whose fire cannot be put out. This is a younger version of the same lair you can read about in the Claudia Gray novel Princess of Alderaan, released at the end of 2017 after Carrie Fisher had departed this world for the next. This book details her as a teenager grappling with her apparently politically non-committal parents, only to find that they are secretly instrumental in firing up the rebellion. There's also the story where, among a ski survival group of similar rich kids, she meets a very tall, awkward girl with dyed green hair, off-putting, possibly on the spectrum, but extremely good-hearted young woman named Amelyn Holdo. I love that detail. The scenario in episode two of The Kenobi Show, where Ben is desperately trying to get Leia through planet Blade Runner to the spaceport, pursued by various dark stalking figures with the specter of Vader looming, was so close to the dream that I had 22 years ago that I was honestly quite taken aback. I mean, it's, it's a simple thing to, to replicate, but I was just like, wow, my head is actually finally here again. This feels like what I felt like before Star Wars disappointed me again and again and again. <laughs> Wow, and that is something that 
most people probably think they are never going to get back. Yeah. This miniseries delivered what I think a lot of us were hoping for from the prequels. In fact, if one were to reposition Revenge of the Sith to the middle of that trilogy, with these events occupying the third, it feels like the Vader and Kenobi that we finally get here would have been very well received in, say, 2005, occupying, as they do, a space closer to that story, illuminating the lost period by ironically keeping the lights off most of the time, joining the fall of the Jedi and the rise of the Empire in a more personal and slowly creeping way that feels sadder, quieter, and more desperate. It's mature and admirable and confident as a tale, told with far less of the razzmatazz of the usual numbered Star Wars films. All the vibrancy seems to have been leached out of the prequel era, but the lights are still shining in the darkness, for better or for worse. And we may not have noticed it, but this didn't feel like a toy commercial. The beat-up starships were not positioned as things that you want to put on your shelf like the Razor Crest was. The characters, while rich and colourful, don't have that Baby Yoda merch goldmine vibe. Obi-Wan is not cool, and neither is Vader. This feels like an extension of a single YouTube mashup video called Obi-Wan Has PTSD, where he starts talking to Luke. It's, it's, it's Alec Guinness talking to Luke and saying, Anakin was a good friend, and then pauses and reflects, and it kind of shows flashes and fragments of his memories of the people who are now dead. Of, of the Jedi being slaughtered, and of the, the Empire taking over, and of darkness, and Anakin, and child slaying, and just the worst stuff. And it conveyed, using the Kuleshov effect, from a performance that's 45 years old now, that Guinness's character was sitting on a ton more emotion than I would imagine Guinness was experiencing at the time. And I thought that was a masterful bit of editing, and it's it's paid homage to at the beginning of this series with the flashback to the prequels that actually kind of makes the prequels seem pretty focused and tight and gives us the important stuff. And Obi-Wan Has PTSD may as well be the name of this whole show, because he absolutely does. Uh, he claims to be the property of an Obi-Wan Kenobi. Is he a relative of yours? Do you know who he's talking about? Obi-Wan Kenobi. Obi-Wan. Now that's a name I've not heard in a long time. A long time. I think my uncle knows him. He said he was dead. Oh, he's not dead. Not yet. You know him? Well, of course I know him. He's me. I haven't gone by the name of Obi-Wan since all before you were born. No, my father didn't fight in the wars. He was a navigator on a spice freighter. That's what your uncle told you. He didn't hold with your father's ideals, thought he should have stayed here and not gotten involved. You fought in the Clone Wars? Yes. 
I was once a Jedi Knight, the same as your father. I wish I'd known him. He was the best star pilot in the galaxy. And a cunning warrior. And he was a good friend. I have something here for you. Your father wanted you to have this when you were old enough. What is it? Father's lightsaber. For over a thousand generations, the Jedi Knights were the guardians of peace and justice in the old Republic. Before the dark time. Especially at that bit, there's like at the end, there's just like a bit where Alec Guinness looks off into the middle distance while like, you were my brother, Anakin. I loved you. And that's like this, everything Ewan McGregor is doing is is that one bit. The thing that uh, I've been thinking about, like after rewatching the series set of pressure in my mind for this is I never really thought so much about Obi-Wan having an alias in A New Hope beyond, well, of course he'd have one, he's in hiding. Mm. It really feels like he needs to be Ben while he's in hiding because Ben doesn't have to care. Yeah. Obi-Wan does. That's why he is very insistent when, when the one Jedi that the Inquisitors are after finds him, no, I'm Ben, you're looking for someone else. Or when Bail Organa comes to him and he keeps saying, I am not the person you remember. It's quite hypnotic, actually. Uh, McGregor's performance in this is wonderful. It's so slight and it's so understated. And it's not something we've seen in Star Wars for a while. I think uh, Diego Luna's performance as Cassian was similarly slight and understated and PTSD riddled. He feels fragile. Yeah, and I, I really appreciate when heavy action stories and let's face it in this day and age franchises take characters who've been exposed to incredibly difficult and traumatic situations and doesn't go well obviously that's turned them into a sword wielding badass mm. it it shows them showing them as men who do not want to go near another battle for the rest of their life if they can possibly help it yeah. feels much more grounded and down to earth in a way that what the the action oriented portrayals of warriors mm-hmm. tends to be more emphasized and it and that is antithetical to Yoda's wars do not make one great mm-hmm. which is something that mm-hmm. whenever Star Wars starts to lean too heavily on the wow wasn't that a fantastic battle scene uh no Yoda would tell you you're doing this wrong Sick of I Become Old and Weak is not because of his years. Yeah, indeed. Uh, 19 years did not make a massive difference to Yoda during his growth cycle. It's everything he lived through. Yeah. Mm -hmm. McGregor was always 
basically the best thing mm -hmm. in the prequel trilogy. And so getting him back and putting him in something good in this role, he clearly likes. Like, I'm no fan of the prequels, but at the end of the day, McGregor is my Obi-Wan. Mm -hmm. Like, just because mm -hmm. he's happy to be here. I really admired how wordless the uh, the early part was. That whole, the cycle of him cutting bits of crate dragon was that crate dragon i think it was i think so yeah uh, and, and and just the the repeated sort of folding a little bit and sort of keeping that it reminded me of mercedes in uh, uh, pan's labyrinth just habitually folding her knife into her apron as a kind of just like this is her daily routine they really push the he's buried his sword he is no longer a knight He's doing the bare minimum, which is to keep an eye on the, the kid, as is his bidding. And he's like, oh, maybe I could uh, give him this uh, spaceship. And, and I was like, get out of here, you crazy old buzzard. And <laughs> it's, it's, it's a crushingly sl small existence that he uh, is in. But at the same time, it's a penance. He's blaming himself for his part in, and his inaction in allowing this to happen in a much more overt way than any of the rest of the Jedi because he was right there on top of Anakin the whole time and he didn't see it. The other thing is I think there's an element of desperately wanting to do something which is of use because the, from the distance that he's watching he can see and eventually he does reconcile this that Owen and Beru are doing a good job of looking after Luke yeah. that they are able to take care of him to a degree that they do not necessarily need Obi-Wan to be hanging around just in case and in the course of this story he also sees that Bail Organa and Brea are doing a good job looking after Leia and he is not really needed there either and that's that's the other thing because part of what goes with the, the sort of the hermit-like existence is you want to stay away from everybody but you also kind of still need to maintain some sort of well I might as I, I, I have something some purpose that is loosely connected with these people because otherwise you just drift off and then it's you're in a cave until one day you're not anymore and nobody notices. Yeah. So yeah, this this show functions as a transition point between despair and hope. And I feel like it makes emotional sense the whole way through, even if there are times when it doesn't quite make logical sense. I think we said this for uh, um, the Doctor Strange show. We are much easier to forgive plot holes you could drive a truck through when the characters behave emotionally consistently. You know? Yes. As yeah. it, Sharon and I, some people are obviously completely different. No, no, it's like, yeah, I, what she does doesn't make sense, but it's great because it emotionally it makes perfect sense. Yeah. It's a, it's a last-ditch attempt to stab out. If, if, yeah. the, if the way somebody is putting across the character is... Um, is nuanced enough mm. that they can convince me that it makes sense to them mm. to do this, even if I can't quite see how A becomes B becomes C becomes D. If they're convinced by it, then mm. I'm fine with that. If they're not yeah. giving me enough nuance or conviction in the character that I can think, yeah, there's, a, there's enough of a person there that I think you would draw these conclusions that make sense to you, mm. then less so. But ultimately, Moses Ingram's performance in this was so heartfelt on every level. The, the fact that she manages to combine 
the the emotion of her flashback scenes with the expressions on her face while she is having those flashbacks that is I'm not going to say that's rare because ultimately if you're doing a flashback you have to be able to do that that's the whole point of it but on some level I genuinely believed she was that little girl as well mm. that's how how clearly she was communicating with me as an audience member that she was feeling those emotions and that they were resurfacing her I mean you talk about your PTSD she was th those were literal flashbacks for her that's the way it was coming across she was going back to that moment and repositioning herself as that child being pursued by Anakin yeah it's the good version of Martha yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> one thing about Reva's reactions when she comes to the end of her arc with regards to this i actually really appreciate it it's a subtle thing but we don't see a moment where she's like if i hurt this child i'm as bad as anakin mm. we don't see that transformation and it seems from what she says to obi-wan when she gets back to the farmstead that actually wasn't the the sequence of events she couldn't do it and then she realizes that that puts a difference between her and Anakin. It's not that she couldn't do it or she stopped herself doing it so that she wouldn't be as bad as him. She just fundamentally was too good a person to, kill to, children. to yeah. perform that act. Yeah, she, 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 she acts like it's a failing mm. that she couldn't kill Luke and Obi-Wan's yeah. like, uh, no, no, in fact, this is a very good thing. Let me talk you back off that cliff. Exactly. She acts like someone who's been indoctrinated into a cult, which is literally what happened to her. The When she goes around shouting about the Jedi in the marketplace, you know, she's like, they are not coming for you. They are not heroes. And she's been told this over and over again, clearly. They are not coming to rescue you. No one is coming to rescue you. Everyone keeps saying that to Leia. And she, uh, you know, yeah. just keeps fighting because she right. doesn't... It yeah. feels like Reva at some point just decided, yeah, they're absolutely right. And nobody did come. Mm. There is something oh. similar, actually, in, in Reva and Leia, in that they do both get repeatedly told no one is coming for you. And they both, in, in different ways, but they both kind of reach the conclusion, fine, I'll be the one who comes. Mm. I'll be the one who, who comes to do the saving if no one's coming to save me. Yeah. Yeah, the twist for me was that it wasn't, that she was one of the kids that Anakin had seemingly killed and that was her motivation the whole time i thought it was just like yeah then they got kidnapped and turned into inquisitors yeah, yeah. the but it, it, the fact that she is the only one who makes it out at least as far as we know means that she has this this layer of survivor's guilt that goes way beyond the simple idea that a handful of children managed to escape the, yeah. um, the order 66 when when Moses Ingram is delivering the line, I was hiding with the bodies until they went cold. Mm. I, That's been what that some is, people have said about uh, surviving school shootings, just pretending oh yeah. to be dead. I, it's like, it is heartrending to hear her say that. Mm. And like, to put it on like another scene that is just so well put together and so utterly heartrending with her character is her attempt to fight Vader, emphasis on the word attempt, mm. because that was not a fight. Yeah. 
That was almost feeling like she deserved to die for betraying everything that she stood for and all of her classmates who were all killed and she became this monster. Mm. So she's paying a penance just like Obi-Wan and like there's various illogical things she does which actually make more emotional sense if you realize she wants to be destroyed so she no longer has to feel this. Yeah. I think there's there's possibly sort of she's she's sitting on a balance point at one stage where she's she wants Vader to come to her. But there are two possible outcomes. One is that she kills him and avenges all her friends. Mm. The other is that he kills her and finishes the thing that she escaped from and shouldn't have. Mm. And at that stage, she would actually be okay with either of them. Like his psychopathy is effectively spread to her and she needs to reenact that. Yeah. And honestly, the, the again, the Kuleshov effect of the editing supports that tragic delusion. Mm. And you can see how like that little girl is still there in her. Like when when Obi Wan suggests the plan of using him to lure Vader in, and she just like leans in. What if he knows? Hmm. And she's she's just and I mean that's exactly like exactly what happens. She's terror. She wants to just to kill him, but she's also terrified to face Vader. And like during their duel, like at the end, she looks like she's about to burst into tears. It's. Yeah. It's rough. <laughs> that, yeah, that scene where they're talking to each other through the door and she ends up going, nope, I'm not going to be doing any of this, fuck it, and keep, uh, and keep striving forwards towards being brutal and merciless. She has reached a point of despair where she cannot envision a life without this. That's why she's sobbing at the end, because she has to rebuild herself from nothing. Yeah. yeah. Which does make sense for having gone through that situation. Ultimately, the only person who walked away from that scenario was Anakin. Mm. So if she wants to survive, she's got to be like him. That that logic makes emotional sense to me. Mm. And this is another reason why I actually find most of the way Star Wars is marketed, not necessarily the actual media, but the way it's marketed to be really distasteful. Like I, I had a pack of nerds uh, not too long ago, around about the same time as uh, Rise of Skywalker, that was blue nerds on one side and cherry nerds on the other side, so raspberry and cherry. And it was like, what side are you on? Dark side, who killed children? Or, or light side, who tried to stop children being killed? And I'm like, this this isn't like a, a fun choice you're being given it's, here. Like, it's, it's not so fucking distasteful. Yeah, this, no, is, this no, is not the red team and the blue team. Yeah. Again, like when I had to buy my copy of Rise of Skywalker on Blu-ray, it was like, do you want the Ray sleeve or do you want the Kylo sleeve? He was also a, a, a school shooter. And it just... <clears throat> it's something that I feel like Disney are really trying to sort of like steer away from. Don't think too much. Don't ask too much. And if yeah. there's something which makes you think too much about Star Wars, we'll scrub it out and give you something which doesn't make you too, think too much about Star Wars. For example, the whole Stormtrooper side of things. They were just... Originally, it was just clearly space racists who enlist... So that they can bully people. Then it was their clones, so they're genetically bred for this. And then they did away with them and got space racists instead. And then with the uh, new era, it's like, oh no, no, they they kidnap children from planets, indoctrinate them, and force them to fight their wars. Oh, so like the Jedi then. So it's kind of like that question should have been in the third film when Finn talked to Luke, or maybe Kenobi. Yes, I was taken from my planet as a boy, just like you, Finn. And at the same time, it's like, look, there's a there's a girl version of Finn. See, she's, she's a girl, but she used to be a stormtrooper. And so that's okay. So moving on. And that was it. So moving on is the name of Rise of Skywalker. Anyway. 
<laughs> like, don't put these complex things in your good versus bad. Cops and robbers before we realized all cops are bastards. Cowboys and Indians before we realized it was founded entirely on genocide. So if you are going to make it complex, absolutely do that. Run with it. Move it forwards. Evolve Star Wars. But if you don't want to evolve Star Wars because it messes with your merchandising, don't tease us with this shit. It breaks Star Wars. And now because I've used this term without explaining it at least twice in this episode, here is Dan Olson to explain the Kuleshov effect in editing. So Lev Kuleshov was a Soviet filmmaker in the early 20th century, but really he was a theoretician. He made movies, but he was more interested in the ideas of how movies worked. In particular, the psychological mechanics of editing. So in the early 1920s, Kuleshov is teaching at the Soviet National Film School, and he's telling his students, he's writing, that the soul of cinema is in the edit. It's in the way that two shots interact. In fact, he argues that acting itself can be completely suborned by editing. It is not the actor that matters, it is the cut. More meaning, he says, is created by the interaction of two shots than by any shot in isolation. To demonstrate this, he puts together a famous editing exercise. An actor sits and stares at the camera with a blank expression. This shot is then intercut with a number of other images, war footage, a hot meal, children playing, and so on. The perception on the part of the audience is that the face takes on the implications of reaction, the neutral expression looking sad or hungry or worried in turn following the war, food, and child. The meaning is created not from either the A shot or the B shot, it is created from the juxtaposition of the two. Because there's a couple of things going on here. First is the idea of eyeline. This is another thing that we address briefly in Suicide Squad, the instinct to follow someone's eyeline, that if someone on screen is looking somewhere and we cut away, it is assumed that the B shot is the thing that they are looking at, even if A and B aren't factually anywhere near each other. A character looks somewhere in the A shot we assume the B shot is what they were looking at. The second is the idea of meaning, or what it means when we say meaning. The instinct is to assume that it's a deeper metaphorical kind of meaning, that we're saying theme and value are created by the interaction of two shots. And while that is true, metaphor is created by the interaction between shots, it's also a lot more mundane. It's the kind of thing you're not even thinking about. Let's look at that Cloverfield shot again. The meaning that's created is that these two shots are in the same space. The meaning is a better understanding of the geography of that space. The meaning is, this is what Michelle is seeing. The very next cut is to a close-up of the slaughtered pigs. Even though this is not contiguous with Michelle's actual field of vision, it is not a literal point of view shot because human eyes don't have a zoom function, it is emotionally contiguous. By cutting from far to close, the editor is saying that this is important. They are highlighting the emotional impact, the sense that a shocking thing seems to consume our focus. Then, Kuleshov effect in full force, the editor cuts back to Michelle for her reaction. A shot, B shot. The simple fact that we are even able to describe this as a reaction shot is owed to this psychological phenomenon. This forms the logic behind the rules and dialect of film editing, the shot-reverse shot of dialogue, the progression from establishing shots inward to close-ups, the preservation of screen direction through travel, and so on. Because this meaning becomes inherent to the sequence, a careful consideration of placement, order, and timing is necessary to both create desired meaning and to avoid undesired meaning. 
Kuleshov was being purposefully dramatic about the all-consuming power of the edit in creating the meaning of film, the ability to erase the actor, but only a little bit. This quirk of our brains, this perception of continuity and relation between two disconnected images, is second only to the perception of motion itself in how fundamental it is to the very structure of cinema. Thank you, Dan Olson. And if you're not already subscribed to Folding Ideas, do that today. One of the very best channels on YouTube. So, <clears throat> Leia. Vivian oh. Lyra Blair. Oh. I only found out her name recently. <laughs> what a great name. And she was instrumental in one of the first, like within the first few seconds of her being on screen, they brought up slavery and droids. Two other things which I keep talking about regarding Star Wars. Why yeah. is everyone so yeah. fucking cool mm -hmm. with slavery? And why are you being kind to droids? They don't need it. You're gonna make friends with your toaster. No, but my toaster can't talk. Anyone like any toast? Look, no toast. How about a muffin? Or muffins! He doesn't have advanced AI. He doesn't have feelings. And he doesn't fear he's going to be destroyed. But back to young Leia. The second, the very second, while I was first watching these episodes, when they cut to Alderaan, I realized what they were doing and I was like, oh, I am sold on whatever this show is doing from this point on. Oh, nice. Because it was like, I don't know, maybe it was in one of the trailers for this, but I actually managed to avoid them for once with no. this. And, and like, so I had no idea that this show going here, like, establishing a relationship between Leia and Obi-Wan. Like, once I realized that that's what this show was going to be about, I was like, yes, I am in for this. This is something never really expected. And... It was great. Yeah. I definitely watched the trailers. She doesn't show up at all. Nice. There's a couple shots mm -hmm. of Luke, and it definitely implies it's about Obi-Wan protecting Luke, and then, yeah, that they just throw you that curveball, which is great. And which is, like, we all should have seen this coming. It's established, like, hard, that Luke sat on Tatooine for 19 mm -hmm. goddamn years and, and didn't lived do a boring-ass life. Shoot <laughs> yeah. yeah, but Leia, Leia was out there doing shit. She was, you know, teenage rebel. Like, literally, in the Rebellion, as a teenager. So, of course, she's where the interesting story is. Yep. And specifically, Luke's had a whole trilogy and The Last Jedi to be an amazing character. Leia has been a support character from fucking day one, including the original Star Wars. When they get her off that Death Star, like, she's the bag, they've got the bag from the Empire, she, they bring the bag back to uh, the uh, the moon of Yavin, and then the bag watches them do their X-Wing thing. <laughs> yeah. I'm so sorry, Carrie. She deserved so much more, and that's one of the... I will never not be infuriated that the Reaper saw fit to rob us of her yep. in 2016 mm -hmm. and not in 2030. And just like, that she wasn't the driving mature force behind episode nine that she should have been. If you read Colin yep. Trevorrow's script, yeah. by the way, she's barely in that either. So it's not like it would have been fucking yeah. fantastic Leia Fest. And uh, it was also like, written before Carrie Fisher died. So he wasn't even taking the opportunity. Colin, you needed at the gap. Introducing Alderaan was great. And honestly, mm. I always love whenever we go back to Alderaan because I mean, it makes it mean something in yeah. Star Wars. Because Star Wars, the original yes. New Hope, New Hope, does not care when you actually blow up Alderaan. 
And like, that's for, always the problem. The biggest issue for me with the New Hope is it just doesn't give a shit when people yeah. die. Yeah. Like, like Robot Chicken made a joke about that. Luke, what's wrong? I just can't believe Ben's gone. Oh, did the 80-year-old man you just met yesterday die? I mean, sorry if I didn't notice. I was a little busy thinking about my entire family and the other two billion people from Alderaan who were just vaporized into dust about three hours ago. And now it's been established canonically she knew Obi-Wan a lot yeah. more than Luke did. Yeah. They had it conversations, they exchanged she even gifts. Knew him better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh god. It, it does it, it is it is funny that though that it does add extra weight. Like a lot of people pointed out that uh when Luke tells her that uh he's with Ben, ben Kenobi and she goes, like, Ben Kenobi! Yeah. Like this we're actually gonna get out of here. This is great. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I don't know, there's just so many moments like that. Like like Luke doesn't give a shit when Owen and Baru die. Luke doesn't give a shit when Biggs dies. It's it's just so sad. And so I love when we get to build up Alderaan yeah. as like, yeah, so this is why you should care. Because this is a look how magical this place was. Uh, it's, it's strongly implied like, that Alderaan is some kind of uh, matriarchy system. Mm-hmm. No one ever says it, but like uh, Leia's mom is the queen. Mm-hmm. I get really get the sense that the, her bail married into it. Like this is their the Organa dynasty. Yeah, in the in the Princess of Alderaan novel, uh, which we're halfway through. Yeah, Brea is her mother is the queen, and Bail is her, referred to as her viceroy. Oh, nice. Yeah, so he's, okay. He's like yeah. the consort. That it's it's they divide their tasks according to their personal skills, but effectively he does all her admin. Mm. Cool. Nice. I, Why are you looking I at me like that, admin? One of one of my like there was a, I think it's called it's How support. to Fix the Prequels, and one of its greatest yeah. ideas I always agreed with was that they shouldn't have just introduced a new planet with Naboo. Mm. Naboo sh- in episode one should have been Alderaan. Yeah, agreed. And, like yeah. Padme should have been like Bale's sister or like something like related to the, the royal family in some way like and oh, that would have been yeah. a much better it would have made it so sad as well like you'd know that every yeah, second huh. you've got on this planet is precious because it's ticking uh-huh. down yeah I, I also feel like uh, they're going to go inevitably mark my words here I'm not going to leave this for a cutting class get this said now they're going to go to the period after Return of the Jedi and they'll I pray recast Luke, Leia, and Han with new actors who are really skilled. You've suggested uh, Billy, uh, Billy Lord, Billy Lord as, as uh, uh, Carrie Fisher's yeah, daughter yeah. as Princess mm-hmm. Leia. Fantastic. Just they'll go to that period. My guess is they'll also bring in Thrawn because they'll need someone who is a fucking amazing bad guy for more than mm-hmm. one movie, and we'll get what happened afterwards. And I would really, really like one of those movies to very much focus on Leia. After the Death Star goes, after the Empire are on the run, if not beaten, she goes back to Naboo and tries to reconnect with who, like, uh, some form of her heritage with Alderaan gone. And also, the way that old Spock was rebuilding Vulcan in uh, the yeah. uh, Kelvin timeline yeah. that everyone seems to have abandoned now and no one gives a shit about. I mean, obviously, that was the Alderaan destruction moment that was treated with much more weight in yes. Star Trek 09. 
but yeah. it feels like Leia, like in the, the Leia comic, she's absolutely doing that, and she actually has to fight against this assumption that she's not breaking inside whenever she thinks about it, and other Alderanians who weren't on the planet at the time are like, you yeah. should be crying every time I see you, and you aren't. What are you doing about this atrocity? But the young actress here plays off so well against this seasoned pro. They both occupy a position of power on screen, which you wouldn't normally get with some irritating kid knocking around. I'll try spinning. That's a good trick. No! Not Jake Lloyd's fault. George's fault for casting him. They're both forgiven. Yippee! I love the intense connection that he feels for her. That, like, she's like, you're feeling stuff about me right now. What's your secret? And she's always asking him questions. Mm -hmm. But she's never like in a precocious, sort of show-offy way. She's just like, I just need to know this stuff. Like, you know, I, it's so I can formulate uh, an opinion on it. And she, she's more mature than all the adults that I know. Yeah, I, I also had in my notes, they never sell that uh, Leia is running as fast as they're acting. Like, there's one shot where the, the two dudes, the two goons chasing her, are clearly jogging yeah. to, like, keep up with her. They're like, it's, oh, yeah, we're gonna get you. We're gonna get you. <laughs> I have to wonder if that's a byproduct of, like, them filming a lot of these scenes on those uh, stagecraft scenes with the... Um, with the uh, digital background. Oh yeah, so there's actually not that much ground to cover. Yeah. 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 Very likely. I was impressed by the fact that that Obi-Wan's lightsaber now felt much more solid and heavy. You remember how uh, it used to be in the uh, the prequels where it was just it was made of nothing and it, it was just being spun around willy-nilly. The actual thing that was the lightsaber was like a, a metal rod that was very light yeah. and uh, there were yeah. aluminium things that uh, Ewan McGregor started on his first day just going and they were like, you don't need to make the sound there. <laughs> we can see your lips moving. But, um, but yeah, this time... I know time, I don't have to. You're assuming I can yeah. stop myself. Like there's a just difference... like Brian Blessed on the set of Flash Gordon. Yeah, <laughs> like there's a difference between um, the, the the saber combat in uh, Force Unleashed and the saber combat in uh, Jedi or Fallen Order. Yeah, yeah, where it's uh, the the difference between uh, a super empowering action game where you play basically a, a space superhero versus someone who's actually very vulnerable and needs to plan their attacks carefully and, and definitely needs to block a lot. That's it, it felt like a graduation from that to that with this particular... The way that... Uh, um, Al, uh, almost called him Alec there. The, the way that Ewan was holding his saber. And so those action sequences, whenever the saber came out, which was rare, I, I noticed they were holding back and yeah. I was glad of it because I was like, when it comes out, it needs to feel special and like shit yeah. just got real. But like he's holding it in a very guarded fashion, and and that again that felt, especially since the actual effect they now use to get the lightsabers there. What they basically are are battle-ready light-up replicas made for collectors for conventions and cosplay. Super bright and hard-wearing, so you can duel with them. And if nothing else, they give the actor a lightsaber to act with, as opposed to a aluminium rod. Effectively, he's holding no, like a, a series of light-emitting diodes or, or, or like a, I, uh, a neon tube, mm -hmm. as opposed to having to rotoscope it all the time. So that I provides don't. a light source in camera. Yeah, I was yeah. wondering about that because I yeah. love the light source stuff. Mm. But like, because yes. you keep talking about like both of the the Vader and Obi Wan fights happen in the dark, and yeah. so there's this great, sh including the fact that when they clash, the light turns purple mm. because mm. It's, it's red and blue mixing. 
and it's, uh, I loved the lighting in those. So the, the fact that yeah, it's because they're yeah. physically there, basically, and casting light yeah. is just amazing. Yeah, and it's not even just with the lightsabers. It's like a lot of the lighting in this show is done like that. Like while they're on Blade Runner planets, like all the primary <laughs> lighting is neon signs. Uh, I, I can't I, remember I, it at the moment, so it is. I, I took it in my notes. It is, it's Dayu, but I had in my notes Dayu. That's it. The blade, like, the blade, the Blade Runner play. <laughs> it's just so much easier to say that. Everyone That's knows what, what you is. mean. It's just a giant neon. It's raining all the time. It's it's Blade Runner. It's great. Everyone's eating it looks noodles. Great. <laughs> Someone was. I'm pretty sure that lizard man with the gun was eating noodles. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, but I also. Mm-hmm. Oh, next. I also like with the like how you say like they 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 take their time with the lightsaber combat. I like how it's like Obi Wan has to like get his groove back basically, mm-hmm. like because mm-hmm. yes, and and at the end he actually gets like more spinny with it, but mm-hmm. not as ridiculous yeah. as the prequels. But he's he does definitely doing like like, like spins behind his back and like, stuff. If you pay close attention, he's actually doing the same moves in in the final battle that you see him doing in that maybe a flashback, maybe a shared force vision thing that interweaves throughout episode five. Yeah. Right. And there were a lot of moves in that from their, their final battle. The, uh, the one on, um, oh, fucking hell. I want to say Nabu. Mustafar. Mustafar. The, uh, planet with vaguely racist connotations. <laughs> that doesn't narrow it down. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Um, when we were reading the uh, uh, the Leia book, uh, there's a mention actually of Ken- Kenobi and, uh, and Leia's heard of him. But obviously, it was written several years before this, mm. so there's yeah. no mention of oh, my old friend Ben Kenobi, yeah. who I saw it's, six years ago. I wonder what he's up to now. Just vague enough that yeah. I think they could still just about get away with it. She talks about the fact that her father has told her stories of what happened to Obi Wan yeah. during the Clone Wars, and she's interested in hearing more. But what I really like is now this show's out there they can have whenever Leia's in a comic or Leia's in a book or Leia's in a film she can think about her connection to Ben and this can be developed and worked on over the years Mm. yeah yeah and ultimately she's she's a character there's a reason she named her son Ben, ben. And there's a reason he's such a crushing ben. disappointment. Oof. Indeed. But the, the, because she's a character who has layers of responsibility. <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> layers of responsibility placed on her at various points in her life, most of which she is not really old enough to. to I was going to say juggle successfully, but that's not what I mean. It's it is unfair to put those weights on her at the age that they are. But she she handles it with a plum. But ultimately, that means that when you get to a story where she's not thinking about something that it really feels like she ought to be devoting more time to, it's probably because she's got more important stuff to deal with. She's got priorities in each of these scenarios that has to take over from any of her personal baggage. She compartmentalises. Absolutely. Like a queen. Absolutely. Or a general. <clears throat> yeah. Okay. So Tala, uh, one of the, again, one of the best characters in this... And it's it's an imperial officer who has thought better of atrocity when confronted with the true weight of the actions of like it feels like that she's a she's a character I've written one like this myself who 
morally compromised one year and said, well, I'll just do this. It's for the greater good. And then morally compromised again and then just kept going until eventually the weight of what she was taking part in crushed her. And the performance is so fantastic, especially where she's she's talking about effectively when she decided she couldn't do this anymore. Yeah, mm-hmm. she's she's pretty great. I like the kind of subtle setup of her being like basically Leia's idol. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, the 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 you know the defector from the empires. Like, you know, she the, the, that type of character like, shows up a lot in Star Wars, but it's always yeah. Yeah, I always like it when they do. It's also like I think it's significant that we meet her in the same episode that we meet the person with. Basically, a space Trump sticker on the back of their truck. Oh, frick, yeah. The friendly, star-nosed mole who deeply appreciates the way these violent authoritarians clear away undesirables from society. Because like, I think another like key theme throughout this show is complacency under tyranny and the need to get away from that. Mm. Oh, yeah. Oh, I mean... Because like, is- like, what he has to say is like, Oh, yeah, what's wrong with a little order, right? I know. Frick is, like, a weirdly deep character because of what he represents. Because because if you look at Star Wars, Star, the Empire is very, like, humo, uh, human superior. Like, mm-hmm. human supremacy. All of the people are humans. So he's, he's a minority who's, like, kowtowing to a fascist empire in the hopes that, you know, they won't kill him. Or something, and it, it's just yeah. like right there. It, it gets him nothing. And meanwhile, as a contrast, like something Tala explains is like why she joined the path to start helping the Force sensitive get out from under the Empire is she realized that order was always just a pretext for atrocity, hmm. and it had nothing to do with the greater good. Cruelty for power, power for cruelty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The yeah. section where they're trying to get these fugitives out from the, uh, uh, the it's not even really a rebel base, they're not even a rebellion yet, they're just mm-hmm. undesirables that the Empire want uh-huh. taken off the map. Uh, very strong Last Jedi vibes, and just the idea of, okay, if we can just hold them for this long, keep the doors for this long, then we can get out through the back. It's like little Leia was banking that away, and going, if I ever need to move this many people out, And uh, this is another thing, and it fucking broke my heart. Everyone kept telling her over and over again, no one is coming for you. No one is coming to save you. And Obi-Wan did. And she did get out alive at this point. At the end of Last Jedi, after years and years of trying and trying and failing and failing, Leia finally accepts no one is coming. And then Luke turns up. Yep, and then someone comes. (laughs) I mean, that's, that's been her whole life. She's just got to keep the faith because someone always comes for her. <laughs> oh, another thing I noted, and, and this isn't really to talk Yang about Rogue One because I know loads of people uh, love it, but um, it feels like keeping some of the team alive in Rogue One might actually have made it sadder. I know it sounds strange, mm-hmm. but 
killing all of them, one after the other, in almost a mechanical fashion of, oh, hang on, who's left over? Uh, let's kill them with a grenade. Uh, who's left over? Uh, yeah. Explosion. And, and then just killing them all. is almost I, like hammering you, going, cry, you bastards. They gave so much <laughs> for you. It's like, yeah. but they didn't have to all die like this. And it almost deadens you, the amount of people who die. Like, if if it had just been, say, TCSO, or what was the name of the, um, the, the droid? No, K2SO. K2SO, that's K2SO. the one. And uh, if Donnie Yen had gone out talking about the Force, and but yeah. his friend Baze had survived, and if yeah. uh, Diego Luna's character had survived but Jin hadn't, like, just the, the having people around to mourn them and go, but we're not going to give up, we're going to carry on this fight, that's a better, sadder, mm-hmm. bittersweet mm-hmm. ending than just, and they all died, but it was fine because we had a Star Wars. And it just—it feels like there were enough people left at the end of this, but enough people were sacrificed. Tala's death really hit me hard because everyone else's oh. didn't immediately follow yeah. it. And then, yeah. oh, it's it's so like her death is sad, and Ned B's dying with her right yeah. by your side. Is, oh God, is yeah. what she yeah. she's just staring. Do you like they've slowly over the, the course of like two episodes established she actually really cares about this droid and yeah. just like. Her just staring yeah. at him, realizing they're not going to make it out of this one, mm-hmm. is just so tragic. And but then it's like her just getting the courage to like go down in the blaze of glory and give mm-hmm. give Obi Wan that last bit of hope. Let the let the Force be with you. It, it gets you really yeah. in the chest. Yeah. <laughs> the droid never said a damn word. It was just fantastic physical acting of a guy in a suit. And I think we just, we all started to really care about him when he was just hiding that hammer behind his back that he Uh, never had to mm -hmm. use. And we were like, oh God, no, oh God, no. That was an excellent way to portray a different kind of droid. Especially with the stormtroopers. He's he's a power loader. He doesn't understand. Mm -hmm. And he's like, like, no, he he understands better than you do. He's about to beat your head in if you don't leave. (laughs) So Owen and Baru... There was a fantastic Ooh. juxtaposition. Like they're not really in it that much. At the beginning, they're there just to set up who they are and what the dynamic's going to be. So that then when they have to defend the farmstead at the end, there's a juxtaposition of Obi-Wan and Vader staring down one another, blades lit, samurai film. And then you've got Across the Galaxy on another dirtball planet that could be filmed very cheaply in a quarry. Uh, you've got a Western. We're going to hold out against this invader who's going to try and come to our ranch and take the boy. It it just felt like, even though this didn't feel like Star Wars, because it, it was much more slight and reserved in a character piece rather than a big, you know, snazzy action thing and, you know, sweeping epic romance saga, it felt like it was just getting down to what Star Wars originally began as. The Western with Mando and then the old samurai with this. It's like they get Star Wars more than a lot of fans. Yeah. It's just really nice, I think, in my mind that they brought... That Joel Egerton was ready to come back for, mm. after his five-minute cameo yeah. and then come back <laughs> and actually play a character. Yeah. I was surprised at how... in vested this show got me in owen and baru with so little mm. yep yeah because like they because like to go back to what chris was saying about a new hope it's like i never really thought about them much one way or the other because of how dismissively that movie treated their lives yeah. yep the fact that they give i'm sadly i don't know baru's actress's name off the top of my head bonnie piece but the, the fact that they both give this really good performance 
And it just makes me more mad at the new hope for just like casting them aside. Yeah. Because, like I want, I want more of them. Like they can't, these are, these are Luke's parents. They care about him. And they're like, Baru is just like, this is my home. And I'm going to fight some evil Jedi with this hand me down gun. If I have to, <laughs> you defend that boy. Like he's your own. He is my own. Yeah, that was yes. a great line. Owen going, we got to get out of here. We're not going to be able to, to do this. And, and she's like, no, no, no we're going to defend this place. Just that firmness. It allows you to think forwards and, and imagine a new version of events where stormtroopers come around snooping around oh. for Luke. And rather than just, oh, yeah, yeah, uh, he was just here with some droids. They'll be back soon. Just uh, would you like me to get you some coffee? Uh, rather than that, it's it's a case of, no, they probably tried to protect Luke in some way. And yeah, they, they, they yeah. were prepared for that. You you, ha- you have to believe now that they went down in a blaze of glory. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's effectively justice for Baru and Owen forty five yes. years late. <laughs> yes, and and Joel Egerton it does a really good job of like portraying like you know Owen was always a grump. He was a grouch mm. in the original, so he's 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 a grump here. But he's like he's a grump that you know cares. Like he's just like oh yeah, well I don't have infinite patience, but it, like you know he's like looking lovingly at Luke while he says it, <laughs> and it puts a different slant on the situation that that arises in A New Hope because mm-hmm. it it became for me that the reason he comes up with this invented potentially excuse why Luke can't leave just yet, oh no no I need you for one more season. He's trying to keep him safe for one more year. Mm-hmm. He knows he's going to lose him sooner or later. He's trying to keep him safe for just that little bit longer. Mm. Yeah. Basically, he also managed to sell just a little bit. That Just a reminder that what happened to Anakin is technically a tragedy for Owen, too. And Anakin, for whatever, how little they knew each other, he was Anakin's brother. And so, like... You can see, like, oh, there's a little bit of resentment. Like, when he throws back, like, how you trained Anakin back at Obi-Wan. Like, you can just Mm -hmm. feel... It's not just protection for Luke. He just... A little bit of him blames what happens to his own brother on Obi-Wan. Honestly, we never got to hear that conversation. What the fuck did Obi-Wan tell him? Yes, I I have a baby for you. His, uh... Yep, it's Anakin's baby. What happened? Funny story. (laughs) (laughs) There's... Like, uh, one, of, uh, one, of, one, of, one of the other fixes I saw, like how you could have made the prequels better, and I, I fully agree, was that Owen should have been a character. Mm. Owen should have yes. been like the Han Solo. Like he he wanted to get out there. He wanted to get off this sandball, and then he saw what the hell happened, and that's why he's like, I'm going to go ahead and sit in this farmstead. Yeah. Like, oh Disillusioned. My God. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. Let's finish on Vader, uh, who I was kind of dreading, but not in the best way. Like I was like, what are yeah. they going to do with him? Yeah. Obviously, Hayden Christensen's coming back. I was like, okay. I actually genuinely would really like to see him do something and, and pull off a performance. What, what? I didn't know yeah? that Hayden Christensen was coming oh. back. And when I saw the scene where they flash back yep. and he's fighting Obi-Wan oh, yeah. as yeah. a young man... I assume, you possibly said, uh, because of the way it was These lit. were your exact words. Oh, that's the worst yet. And I went, what? And you said, that's the worst CGI face. And I went, that's his actual face. I know. <laughs> Becoming yeah, 40 years... <laughs> middle age makes yeah. fools of us all, is all I'll say. It's like I brought up a little earlier, like, 
I've seen a lot of theories that that's not actually a flashback. It's just like Vader and Obi-Wan sort of feeling each other through the Force throughout that episode. Hmm. Okay. It, 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 works, reach, but okay. it, it works, works symbolically either way. Yeah. 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 yeah I, it's like, I it does. Like, it doesn't matter, but it's like, it's the explanation I've seen some people go with for why he looks like Hayden Christensen mm. now. I am, however, right. thankful that even if it did uh, freak Sharon out having to look at his big face, um, that they didn't even try with the uh, CGI gonk mm. thing and, well, uh, and pasting like <laughs> like a jib jab of Hayden <laughs> Christensen on his face. I, but the- I, I think they should have whipped out a little bit of that digital makeup they used on like Samuel L. Jackson in Captain Marvel. Yeah, that was quite it, well done. It, it, it is because it's like he's like supposed to, like it's not even like Jedi Knight. Anime. Yeah, he's, he's still got the braid. Secret rat tail. He's, he's, yeah, he's got that. Uh, he's got those old man jowl. Well, not old man, well, but they, older man okay. jowls. Hey, just stay away just from that in, farmstead. It's got old man jowls. On it. In Hayden Christensen's defense, and wow, Lord, I've never, I never heard thought you say I'd that say that sentence. Um, but I think, in part, it's because the light source at that point is the blue lightsabers. It does yeah. fall a bit strange on his face, and because of how his hairline is, his it hair. makes it look a little bit like they've they have done precisely that cgi'd just to to bring him a bit younger mm-hmm. but not done it very well that was what i assumed had happened but every time i think about uh, there's only one flaw i can find in uh captain america the winter soldier it's magnificent as a film and that flaw is shoving those uh, uh Haley Atwell eyes and mouth onto a little old lady's face and how wrong that felt in 2014 and every subsequent year that goes by, it feels like, what was wrong with Back to the Future makeup? Like and That tech was the, not ready at that point. Yeah. The first time I saw it, I thought it didn't look, I thought it didn't look halfway bad when I first saw that in theaters, but every year it ages five. Yeah. 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 I mean, I suppose they could reshoot the whole scene with Hayley Atwell in 80 years' time. (laughs) (laughs) I will will say that uh, they also probably should have used some digital makeup on Jimmy Jimmy Schmitz a little bit because he looks... It's weird how he looks significantly older than he does in, in Rogue, Rogue One. One. Yeah. He does. Again, old age makes fools of us all. But, but I will say, Jimmy Smith's age thing. is like fine wine. Yeah, yeah. So it's, he, that's, he I'm looks fine great, with that. and he that's does a great okay. performance. Yeah. I I, I, honestly, really it's the authenticity of seeing these characters in these roles again right. that I really appreciated. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it's such a far cry from digital gonk Luke Skywalker. Yes. But it is, it is always great for me to see Jimmy Smits in anything because mm. I have had a mad crush on that man <laughs> since the before times, since Tommy Knockers, since... Whoa. That uh, is a long time ago. What's, mm. the t- what's the police show he was in? NYPD? NYPD Blue. Blue, yeah. yeah. Since back in those days. The West Wing? That's when I found Jimmy Smits. Yeah. yeah. And the West Santos. Wing, yeah. Yeah, just everything. He's... <laughs> okay. But that includes Hayden Christensen. I was actually really quite pleased to see him take this role Mm -hmm. up and actually be a genuinely intimidating physical presence as Vader. And I did Uh, not expect to be saying that. Someone put up a comparison during episode three of of this show where he's like chasing after Obi-Wan. It's clearly a Hayden Christensen because he's doing the same kind of like stalking Terminator walk mm. that he did in, in Revenge of the Sith while facing mm. off with Obi-Wan. Yeah. He's going to yeah. what he knows. And I, I would yeah. like to know definitively, I don't know if there's any way to find this out because of the way they phrase it when they talk about it, but obviously they use James Earl Jones' voice uh, for, for his speech. Mm-hmm. However, mm. the software that they 
have talked about using to facilitate that, one of the things they do is like deep fake voice. So they, they create the, the tone of the voice and they create the actual sound of the voice, but then someone speaks and they lay that over the top of it. So it did feel to me sometimes like the cadence was a bit different from how James Earl Jones would have done it. And it I, I wonder if that was actually Hayden Christensen yeah. delivering the lines, but then they put the James Earl Jones voice over the top of it. Either way, it was enough of a magic trick that I wasn't thinking too much about how they did it. I was just thinking, that is Darth Vader. Yeah, absolutely. This is yeah. like after the fact, this was mm. me thinking about this. Yeah, and I especially like at the end when like his helmet's broken, yeah. and, it, and when he's talking, yes. it's like shifting and it between Hayden yeah. and and uh, James Earl Jones yeah. and it's like terrifying and he does a lot of eye acting in that mm. which again like, the uh, my version of Revenge of the Sith cuts out a lot of those awful lines he's pretty good as a physical actor yeah in, in montages and, and where he's not saying anything it's like oh Anakin it's not just about the, the threatening presence either that last scene was his his emotional performance yeah. there was like, so oh, good so at good. convincing me that there like, is still this man in there, how, however yes. hard he is trying to push himself away so that he can be the Darth Vader that, that he has convinced himself is all that's left. But that moment when the helmet breaks and he starts speaking, what I saw in there for just that briefest moment, was actually not Hayden Christensen at all. It was Jake Lloyd. Hmm. It was Ooh. it was this little kid that had been wrenched away from his family and and promised something that, that was what got him off that planet in the first place, that had him making that decision, yes, I will go with these people. That he was he was promised that he was I mean even if it's if it's ridiculous that he got it into his head that he was going to be this greatest Jedi in the history of the world and even if his descent down the the realm of Obi Wan is holding me back and I I ought to be all powerful and it's not fair that I'm not however dangerous and uh, unreasonable that was ultimately at some point he was a little kid who was promised something that made him walk away from everything he'd ever known. And then he was broken and broken and broken again. And that's what I could see behind that mask at that very end. And it was like this this clinging on to being Vader is all he has left at this point. And I think that contrasted so wonderfully with Reva and how she ultimately decided, no, I can still walk away from this. Yet having him there to show this is this is the route that she was potentially going down. This is the danger template that everybody who makes these choices in this universe, this is the, the path they're heading down. And how it brought Vader back from, like you said, Alex, there's there's been these risky little flashes of him in, in subsequent movies where they're like, isn't he awesome? Isn't he badass? Isn't he this... this and video like, games as well. And, vi and like, the video games as well. He stalks through getting absolutely, a kill streak a mile absolutely. wide. Absolutely. And it's like, isn't like, this wonderful? And no, it's not. And it brought him back to the being this cautionary tale. And I thought that was possibly the best yeah. trick they pulled off of all. I feel like they learned from Kylo yes. Ren in that Kylo Ren is also yeah. not cool. Like, mm. he's a cruel wretch and th this Vader like killing that kid when he first sort of turns up and just not giving a jot about it it, it really cemented this guy's twisted up inside you shouldn't want to be him 
and like that angle on him and when he's immediately tortures Kenobi and throws him face down into the fire oh. and then when he gets away yeah. he's looking through the flames and you just get Hayden's back and he's doing some thinking while looking at the flames and it's beautifully framed and that was enough you don't need the super villain overkill yeah. that uh, like. that Rogue One bestowed upon him he's not Sauron he's Gollum like I said before, the not really a fight that he has with Reva, it's like, that did more, in my opinion, to communicate what kind of villain Darth Vader is than that scene that made everyone go nuts in Rogue One. Yeah, that was that was immediately it's like, one of my favorite it's like he's Like, he's not taking Reva's, half of Reva's saber because he needs it. He's taking half of it to taunt her. Yeah. He has his yeah. lightsaber by his side. He's, he's illustrating, I don't even have to reach for it. Yeah, he never, I, I didn't notice till the second one, he never even draws his own lightsaber. He mm. just takes hers at different points. And honestly, I, I, I watched like, that. It was, it's, it was it's not so overkill, weird. it's strategic underkill. Mm. Right. Mm. It's, it, was, it was so interesting to basically watch him do like martial arts moves with, with mm-hmm. the force. I, I also couldn't help but watch him like, like that is cruel, but just if you needed Yoda to fight in the prequels, this is how Yoda should have fought. Yeah. Just like yes! there's a couple, there's a couple like weird like Tai Chi style like force moves he does a couple of times, just like tossing Reva around. Yeah, illustrate like if if Yoda had never had to reach for a lightsaber, he wouldn't have had to leap around the place. I think they just thought, well, Yoda's probably got a laser sword, and he needs to leap up if he's going to get to head height, so he can chop your head off. I- so he's going to be super athletic. Yeah. 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 I also got from him this glowering element to him when he's just he's furious inside the uh the the I'm going to say back to tank but Vader probably sleeps in something else. Uh but you know like whale piss or something to keep him really <laughs> furious all the time. He never allows himself to feel sadness. It feels like the last time he felt sadness, he was crying on uh, Mustafar before he then killed Padmé. And then after that, it's all in that, no, uh, which, again, in my edited version, I replaced that to just this reverberating ah! mechanical scream that I always, yeah. like, would have been way more impactful. It's on YouTube. You can ch- check out my channel. That, that bit's on there. She was alive. I felt it.
was the last time you ever felt sadness, because if you allow sadness to creep in on anger, you stop in your tracks. You stop doing the terrible, harmful thing, and you rethink what you're doing, or, or you stay where you are sad, and Vader cannot allow himself to be sad, which makes Return of the Jedi even better in retrospect, as you see how sad he's becoming, how much of a, inevitably I'm going to have to die so my son can take my shitty job from me. Yeah, and it, it, it definitely explained that. I, I really like that explanation because it does explain the difference yeah. between Vader and Empire and Vader and yeah. Jedi, Return yeah. of the Jedi. I mean, if you pay really close attention to the original trilogy, Vader is not the same character in any of those three movies. Oh. He's mm. one character in A New Hope, one character in Empire, one character in Jedi. Yeah. I, I I really like how this this move this uh, the show kind of acknowledges the the weird mythology like blip. Of uh, in in A New Hope that uh, uh, Obi Wan refers to Vader as Darth, as if mm. Darth is mm-hmm. just his name and not a title, yeah. and like how they tw- like yeah. oh it's because Anakin's dead and he's just gonna talk to him like this. I like how they kind of like reworked that line at the end when when Obi Wan says bye goodbye to him. Yeah. There was also there was a, a lot of talk at the beginning of well how come Vader and Obi Wan fought here and uh, in the sacred texts. The historical documents. He says, the last time we fought, I was but a learner. Now I am the master. And like, uh, there's no other way you can interpret that uh, aside from the last time they fought was on Mustafar. Except that yep. they totally made that the subtext yep. of everything Vader goes through in this. The yeah. uh, you will n- you will not be able to master yourself until you are past this point. Yeah, and it has yeah. Vader effectively acknowledge that he's not yet there. Yeah. and yep. the fact that the, the the Jedi will not give him the title of master, he has yeah. to go out and take that for himself. But also the fact that uh, there are a couple of moments in the the earlier in the prequel movies where Obi Wan calls him Padawan or something along those lines, my young apprentice, he, he is used to referring to him as titles. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. when he calls him Darth, he's referring to him as the Emperor's Lackey. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I like that. I like that. Yeah. But yeah, I, I was really impressed with, with the, like, at the end, when when he basically, he like, he absolves Obi-Wan of his guilt in the most backhanded way possible, but oh, it's still clearly yeah. what he's doing. And pay close attention to the way the light in this scene shifts and turns. To begin with, the blue from Obi-Wan's blade is contrasting with the red and bathing Anakin in both at the same time as he wrestles back and forth, clearly having to make a supreme effort not to kill Obi-Wan on the spot with the Force. And by the end, the blue has gone and he's flooded with red and murderous intent. But he also has the patience to wait for the inevitable. I am not your failure, Obi-Wan. You didn't kill Anakin Skywalker. I did. Ultimately, Obi-Wan Kenobi felt like a missing piece of a story we knew well had finally slotted into place. 
In conclusion, I actually want to break away from Kenobi to talk about the sequel trilogy. I have seen in more recent times one specific prevailing complaint that the trilogy was not authored by a single man, and it is a man, but also that the sequel trilogy was like a giant game of consequences with two directors, Abrams and Johnson, moving in two different directions and working against each other. This has frequently boiled down to a lamenting that this trilogy was not planned out beforehand. It was not mapped and set in stone, and it apparently should have been. Instead, it was a multi-billion dollar game of consequences. That's the slapdash improv exercise where you write something down on a piece of paper, pass it along to the next player who jots down the next part in the story without anyone really thinking about the overarching narrative, and then they pass that on to the next player, which invariably creates a chaotic mess of a story. To that, I ask, which other fantastic trilogy people are comparing these two was planned from the beginning in its entirety? Are we talking about the original Star Wars trilogy? Because that began as a sprawling space epic, the Journal of the Whills. It was the intergalactic war and peace, which eventually, to make a two-hour movie that people could enjoy, had to be boiled down into a crowd-pleasing hero's journey. Names and identities got swapped and changed around. Luke began as a girl, Han was a big alien, Anakin and Vader were most definitely two separate people, and with Empire, George and company had to react to what folks responded to with Star Wars and light a fire under the characters that they loved. It was very up in the air how the love triangle was going to be resolved up until then. It pissed off a lot of people that Leia didn't end up with Luke, something they'd really been rooting for. They didn't know she was his sister yet, because she wasn't yet. That's why she does kiss him on the mouth. And Return of the Jedi followed up on that proposal of No, There Is Another by switching from originally it was going to be Han with Jedi powers to Leia, who would now suddenly be Luke's long-lost and just-created sister. Conveniently, Han was going to die. There was also going to be another Force-using woman in the fourth Star Wars film, which Lucas decided to scrap because he was tired. And Coruscant was too expensive to build in 1983, so George just added a second Death Star, killed the Emperor, redeemed Vader, switched the planet of Wookiees to a planet of Ewoks, and that's how mapped out the Ridge Tridge really was. And it sure as hell isn't the prequel trilogy we're talking about, because that first film was shot off George's first draft script, and it wasn't until they were halfway done filming that he realised when they were watching in the screening room, ooh, he couldn't start editing out huge convoluted chunks of it because it was all connected to itself. And then for Attack of the Clones, he tried to do Titanic, and he made it a sweeping intergalactic romance amid a detective story, trying to find someone named Sifo Diaz, who was never found in any film. And then for film three, he made the strongest entry in the series, because at least now he was dealing with events he was fairly certain of, using things he had written in the interim years as building blocks and a backdrop. That's why it's the strongest. And Anakin became entirely Vader in the space of time it takes for the Avengers to fight a CGI robot army. This can hardly be called planned out from the beginning, and it was bogged down by the biggest drawback of prequels, which I talked about in the Fantastic Beasts show. We're all heading towards a known set point, and we know nothing can change that. Okay, so let's look at another successful and fantastic trilogy, and ask if 
it was planned from the beginning. Back to the Future, amazing film made in 1985. And then Zemeckis spent many years planning out and filming Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And then the second and third Back to the Futures were shot back to back when he was done Rogering. And their plots were absolutely informed upon by difficulties getting back Crispin Glover. So George McFly was dead. How did that happen? And what kind of story would that entail? One of the best trilogies of all time, absolutely not planned from the beginning. The Bourne Trilogy, originally based on a book by Robert Ludlum, and it deviated from that text wildly. Supremacy and Ultimatum were made by a different director, Paul Greengrass, who absolutely capitalized on what he liked most about Doug Lyman's version of Jason Bourne. The Planet of the Apes trilogy had no set plan. Rise, directed by Rupert Wyatt, was crafted as a standalone potential sequel to something like the Charlton Heston original, asking how the world could have gotten this way if we started from where we were in 2011 rather than the dog and cat free dystopia of the fourth Apes film from the 70s where simians were used as slaves in what appears to be Milton Keynes. If you live in England, you'll laugh at that. Then Matt Reeves came along to the open door of potential sequels and he told two successive Caesar stories for 2014 and 2017 respectively, no particular end in sight until they got there. And it's magnificent. The end of the second Apes film was supposed to finish on a battleship coming up the river and it was going to be that the battleship was going to be in the third film but they decided not to include that deleted scene and it was nothing to do with the battleship in the end. That's how planned those films were. How about Marvel, who have convinced us that they plan for everything? Their best trilogy is arguably Captain America. Winter Soldier was reacting to Avengers, which was reacting to First Avenger, and Civil War was reactive to Winter Soldier, and definitely not planned from the beginning because Robert Downey Jr. would have to renegotiate his contract, which is why it was up in the air. It was a pipe dream for Kevin Feige rather than an absolute definitive end to Roger's runner's cap, which it also wasn't. Let's face it, even Endgame wasn't that. We'll see him again. What about Lord of the Rings? Astonishing trilogy, masterfully crafted, based on a book released decades beforehand so they had a guide. And nope, it was going to be one big film. And then executives said, no, 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 you make three films of this. And they were like, we, for a long while, it was, we're quite okay making just two films. To the point where the two towers needed to be carefully reshaped into its own film by Fran Walsh and Pippa Boyens writing the script. Arwen was filmed at Helm's Deep. Their refocusing of Tolkien's dense text to put us in the scene rather than having characters tell other characters what happened after the fact drove a lot of book purists to horrible tears. Planned? Absolutely. Set in stone? Absolutely not. And they had their ending delivered to them. It had to end the way the books did. Joe Rowling had five Fantastic Beasts stories mapped out. And this year we saw the third one close that series out. We will never see any more Fantastic Beasts movies, I can tell you that right now. James Cameron has been telling us he has five more avatars planned for more than 13 years now, and the other four are entirely contingent on this second one released at the end of this year, making all the money in the whole world, let's face it. So I ask again, why should the first Disney trilogy of Star Wars films have one set plan written out between 2012 and 2015 by one man and held to rigorously throughout the 2010s? What if that one man was the wrong man? Colin Trevorrow keeps proving to us over and over again that he cannot write human beings 
or dinosaurs. And yet he was given three Jurassics, directing two, and he was kicked off episode nine far too late in the game. Episode seven was a big comeback for Star Wars to everyone, not just the diehard fans after 10 years of Clone Wars material, which was mostly aimed at little boys. Force Awakens' job was to get everyone to love Star Wars again, and it largely succeeded with the kind of box office reserved for Avatar and Endgame. It was a metatextual re-immersion in Star Wars mythology again, retreading a familiar path with fresh perspective for everyone who longed for a return to the tone of the original trilogy, because we did not get that tone in the prequels. It was written by Lawrence Kasdan, who wrote the scripts for Empire, Jedi, and Raiders, lending it genuine authenticity. Michael Arndt of Toy Story 3, who I mentioned earlier, another entirely unplanned trilogy, I might add. Do you think they were thinking about Toy Story 3 when they made Toy Story in 1995? Also worthy of note, Pete Docter, director of Finding Nemo and Wall-E, wrote episodes 5 and 6 of Obi-Wan, which kind of suggests that Pixar and Star Wars mix rather well. But yeah, Michael Arndt, the sole credited writer of the screenplay for Toy Story 3, is the only other person other than Kazdan and Abrams credited for writing The Force Awakens. And then there's J.J. Abrams, the man who had given Star Trek the flavor of Star Wars and brought it to a bigger audience than the movies had ever received in the past after their most dismal failure, Star Trek Nemesis, that no one turned up for. There was never any way Force Awakens was going to be able to deliver us action heroes from the aged trio, like we imagined. We wanted to see Luke Skywalker kicking wholesale ass, but their presence in handing over to the young was absolutely key. So it accomplished everything a person could reasonably expect from a project with the aims of reminding us why we love Star Wars. Episode eight was given a different focus. Ryan Johnson lit a fire under our heroes, making all the worst things happen to them to see how they would react. It challenged and critiqued our own predisposed assumptions about hero worship and the flawed humanity behind the mythology of Star Wars. Its young characters have their expectations confounded repeatedly when cruel, real life, or as real as Star Wars life can get, does not allow for fairy tale valor alone. It set things off in a new direction with an obvious love for the old films, irreverent, scrutinizing, admiring of those who deserved it. This is not going to go the way you think. Dismissive of those who didn't. Because I'm really Darth Plagueis the Wise. I have no idea who that is. Some people do. Episode nine feels in retrospect like it was made to a set deadline. Like this has got to be out before Disney Plus launches. They didn't know about the pandemic, but it almost feels like they did. <laughs> like they knew they couldn't release it next summer. It had to be out then, or it would not shift. Top Gun Maverick is proof that if you wait and think about it and work on a film for years, you can make it the best version of itself. What ended up as Rise of Skywalker was the regrettable result of expectations or responses to the first two films being confounded with conflicting reports from different fans. Seven was too much like Star Wars, eight was not enough like Star Wars, and instead of electing to make a great film that would stand the test of time, they raced to the finish just to get the fucker over with, which is never a good business plan. Fans of Game of Thrones will tell you that. Though they can also tell you of the opposing dangers of just doing nothing, getting paid vast sums of licensing money for years on end, 
leaving people expectant, yearning for resolution that never comes. I see you shiver with anticipation. Coming soon to HBO Max, another prequel nobody asked for, Game of Thrones, House of the Dragon. Only on HBO Max, we reserve the right to cancel the show if it doesn't make us all the money in the world. And in the years after Rise of Skywalker, I found The Last Jedi had a far more satisfying ending than I originally thought, leaving the characters beaten, uncertain, but hopeful, inspired by the ghosts of the old worlds to help free the new from cyclical tyranny. It didn't really actually need an ending, and that's fine, because it didn't really get one anyway. But say Trevorrow was kept on, and what we got really was planned and stuck to in timely fashion. It is easier to say that it would have been better than what we got, because we didn't get Colin Trevorrow's film. What we didn't get doesn't exist, and it only manifests as a convoluted script and our imaginations. Maybe it was inevitable that they wouldn't stick the landing, but, is a trilogy with two great films a failure? Let's ask Alien. Let's ask Superman. Iron Man. Die Hard. Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy. Sam Raimi's Spider-Man trilogy. Richard Linklater's Before trilogy. And these last three all had one man godfathering them. On that note, the Godfather trilogy. Are we calling the hallowed Godfather 1 and 2? Failures. You see, when you tar everything with the same brush, everything starts to smell like tar. And Star Wars is nothing if not consistent in its inconsistency. It has stories you will love, it has stories you really won't like, and it has stories you will be lukewarm on. Once again, when we accept that simple fact, it turns out loving something can happen despite its flaws. And with Thor 4 out this very week, Maybe it's time we moved past considering trilogies as completed works, with studios trying to keep all of their properties alive with continuing series in-world reboots. An ending is just an offer for more sequels to continue the story for better or worse. Die Hard 4 and 5 say hi, as does Alien Resurrection, Land of the Dead, Matrix Resurrections, Oceans 8, Pirates 4, Pirates 5, the upcoming reboot of Pirates, Men in Black International, Jason Bourne 4, and the Hawkeye spin-off that everyone forgot, The Bourne Legacy, Toy Story 4 and Lightyear, Sam Wilson, Captain America, Tom Holland's Peter Parker, here for the long haul. Enter the Spider-Verse 2 Part 1, and Enter the Spider-Verse 2 Part 2? Ghostbusters 4, or is it 5 just greenlit? The headcanon of the four-part Lego Movie Duet trilogy? And lest we forget, Mad Max Fury Road. The best we can hope for is that art and having a tale to tell wins out over grabbing at coins. And that is a very roundabout way of saying that I think Obi-Wan Kenobi as a mini-series succeeds in doing exactly that. No one's ever really gone, but there are always more things we can learn about them from a passionate creative team who believes in what they're doing. It may not provide us with either an ending or a beginning, but it provides us with a closure on a shrouded part of this grand saga, propels forward intrepid young heroes, and lays those old ghosts to rest.
It was very hot on the day we recorded this show on Obi-Wan. Sharon and I were exhausted. Both of us had migraines and both of us had to scarf down painkillers just to get by. The conversation ended up two hours and 38 minutes long and frankly, it is amazing I managed to get such a focused final edit out of that. But I credit our guests for bringing it once again. And that means that there is more than an hour that got trimmed out. And what a coincidence, because that's as much as I trimmed out of my edit on the TV show to turn Obi-Wan into a movie. And you can hear all about how that worked out on this Cutting Class episode coming to the Patreon this weekend for all our supporters on the $5 bonus feed level. Here's a clip. And yes, you can hear how delirious we were. I took out that bit where they bickered. My lord, maybe don't pursue the one shuttle and it's Kenobi, go after him. And he's just standing in the background. You know the way that uh, young Tarkin is at the end of Revenge of the Sith going, not gonna say anything, but I'm here. Mom, mom, that's the Inquisitor! <laughs> and she was screaming in the background because she was Oberyn Martell's paramour. Oberyn Martell was played by... Pedro Pascal. Pedro Pascal. And Man that's Man why, when he's the Mandalorian, he won't take his helmet off because he's like, no, if this comes off, you're killing me. I'm not having it. I say, y'all ain't killing me! Like a melon, I swear. And as ever, our $15 sponsors get credit every episode, so thank you to Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Alex Brewington, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clayson, Joe G, Josh Waster, Kat Esman, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Matthew A. Siebert, Matthew Webb, Michael Hasco, Robbie Crow, Sarah Montgomery, Timu Hellas Hayu, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Skills Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. So before you go, can our guests tell the folks at home where their best stuff can be found? Start with Austin. Uh, as I said on my previous spots guessing on here, um, my main like huge project writing is done on Tumblr, W-I-T-S hyphen writing.tumblr.com. That's wits hyphen writing.tumblr.com. It used to be where I posted reviews of movies as I saw them in the theater, but um, Nowadays, I keep all that on Letterboxd, and the blog has become where I do longer, more involved project writing, which I have several things going right now. I don't know what's going to get posted next, but if you liked my thoughts here and want to see me talk more about media, just follow my Letterboxd, which is 
WC underscore WIT. Thank you very much, Austin. And Chris. You like fan fiction? Sometimes I write fan fiction. <laughs> hey, kids, you like fan fiction? I'm, I'm an old man fan fiction, too. I'm still on fanfiction.net. I haven't moved over to that, that new, the, the newfangled AO3 those kids are on these days. Uh, other than that, um, there is Finmonster. And other than that, uh, I'm just on the Discord, yelling my opinions into the void that other people can watch. <laughs> So I think that is going to about do it. We will be back next week for the third in the Thor trilogy, Thor 4, Love and Thunder. <laughs> the Thor 4, can we just forget the second one even happened? I don't know. Well, I mean, that, they can't. They stuck in so much of it in Endgame. It's now a load-bearing yeah. film. You have to see it. I was about to say you could have until, the, until Endgame. Yeah. yeah. But, but could it be argued that you now don't have to see it at all because all the good bits are in Endgame? You could argue that. <laughs> Anyway, so yeah, yeah, we'll be back with that. And uh, yeah, once again, Disney want all the attention because we, we're doing Obi-Wan, then Thor 4, and then the week after that, I think it's going to be Ms. Marvel. Oh, no, wait, wait. Oh, that's going to be good. I know this. It's Harley Quinn seasons one and two to oh, coincide with the launch that. of Harley Quinn oh. season three and then Ms. Marvel. No, it's okay. It's, I, I'm just saying, I'm still mad that Disney decided Wednesday is their only release day for Disney+. Yeah. Plus Because they effectively... <laughs> buried the greatest thing they did in Star Wars by putting out it. I mean, Miss Marvel's great, but it's like they didn't need to come out on the same day. Yeah. And it really makes no sense. And then Doctor Strange 2 launched on the same goddamn day because they'd forgotten that a certain contract had been signed to get it released on Sky or something. That was Doctor Strange 2 on the day the final episode of Obi-Wan aired. Any other day in the whole year, Disney. Ugh. So yeah, it was. I, I called it Big Wednesday, and we had to stretch it out over three days. It was crazy, <laughs> and I had to I had to mute multiple Discord tracks. Oh yeah, yeah. Editor's note: Having subsequently seen Thor: Love and Thunder after recording and editing this show, I can tell you that, like Multiverse of Madness, we are going to have to wait on this one. Spend a few months mulling it over, watch it again on Disney Plus, then just really weigh up how we feel in retrospect. That certainly made for the best Doctor Strange 2 show, and since there are frequent Marvel collisions, we don't need to rush any of them. So next week will be Ms. Marvel, followed by Harley Quinn. Ms. Marvel and Harley Quinn, two equally great superhero shows, opposite ends of the tone spectrum. Yeah. <laughs> okay, uh, so yeah, we will be back with more Disney Channel stuff, intermittently broken up by HBO Max stuff. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And may the force be with you. And also with you. <laughs> and with your spirit. 